very excited about today's think tank. I'm joined by Dr. Eric Cam, economics professor at TMU and a very good friend of the show. He's he's almost like the uh, he's our, our remote uh, co-host at certain times. Thank you so much for being here, Eric. Ben, it's an honor. Thank you. And Jennifer McKelvey, former deputy mayor, uh, and uh, she's been a Toronto City Councillor for Scarborough Rouge Park for the past five years. Jennifer, great to have you on the show for the first time. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, one, one thing. Uh, Jennifer? Yes? Infobales! Uh, let's try that again. Happy birthday, Jennifer. Toronto, if you see Jennifer McKelvey today, wish her a very happy birthday. I'm a gentleman, and I've been told never to ask a, a lady her age, so we will just say happy birthday, Councillor McKelvey. Well, thank you very much for that. It's very kind. It is. Um, I also know yeah. I'm all day, so everyone <laughs> will be on the street. <laughs> all right, let's jump right into these topics. And Jennifer, we're going to start with you. We're going to start with the, um, the, the story that was everywhere yesterday. You were at the announcement that Toronto has reached a $471 million housing deal with Ottawa to build 53,000 new units over the next decade. And normally, I would focus on the negatives of this story because it's, it's a crisis we're facing. I'd say that 53,000 units over a decade doesn't really address the immediate problems facing Toronto, doesn't keep pace with the population growth that we're going to experience over the next 10 years. Uh, you could say it falls short of the $600 million minimum that Olivia Chow said she needed on this file. Uh, but this money will force the city to relax regulation, speed up approvals of homes, not just for the homes that are targeted by this accelerator, but, but for all home builders. Uh, so you've worked on this file. You know this file intimately. You see, you see this number. You see this announcement. Is this a net positive for the city? Absolutely. And yes, financially, it is just a drop in the bucket. But really, it is making a much-needed splash. And we have a lot of momentum that is going on this file so just in the last year alone, last December, we legalized rooming houses and are developing a regulatory framework for that. In the spring, when I was in the role of uh, serving in the office of the mayor, we approved our housing plan of 285,000 homes by 2031. We approved multiplex zoning across the city. We launched the development and growth division so that we can process permits faster, rezone faster. And we now have more than 200 cranes in the sky building. So the momentum is there. This contributes to that momentum. We have all the pieces in place now. We have a target. We have a plan. We have an accountability framework. You can go to toronto.ca slash housing data. It can tell you where we're at with those buildings. And now this is that final piece and a step towards that final piece, which really is partnership. And we have the partnership with the federal government. And now we need to continue to work on that with the province as well. Dr. Eric Cam, you're an economics professor. Do the economics of this tell you that you should be optimistic? I think the economics say you should be optimistic, and uh, happy birthday, Jen. She knows more about this topic than I ever will because she's an insider. But my concern is, and I don't want to be the glass half-empty guy, is I'd like to see that plan. They talk about the plan. Where are these houses going to go? Like you, I drive around the city a lot, and I don't see in the urban density centers where all of these houses are going to be built. So my question is, where are they going to go? And if they are on the outside of the city... How far outside? What's going to happen with transportation to get into the city? Because I know from talking to students, their big fear is that they're going to have to live two or three hours away from where they work. So, yes, is this the right policy at the right time? Of course, everybody knows we're in a massive housing crisis in Canada, and especially in the 416905. I just have a question. Where are you going to build these houses? How is employment going to work? 
And what is the infrastructure like in terms of transportation? Jennifer, we wouldn't expect you to be the spokesperson for this entire initiative, but is there anything that you can say to answer that question? Well, the target of 285,000 homes, that's just the city of Toronto's target. That's what we need to do in our city. So really where we're trying to focus the density is around the transit stations. Uh, We see that plazas, malls, they're being redeveloped. There'll be a lot more density on those sites going forward. But we're also transforming neighbourhoods themselves. We're moving exclusionary zoning. That's going to allow areas with multiplexes. That's going to allow four storeys. There's a whole bunch of different initiatives that contribute to this. But that 285,000 has to be right here in Toronto. All right, we're going to move on. Uh, we've got a clip I want to play the audio of right now, and then we'll get into the questions. Oh, no. Okay, so uh, there was an Instagram video uh, that uh, we don't have the, the audio of it, but they're, the two most effective political videos that I've seen over the past month were the Pierre Poliev housing documentary uh, and uh, this uh, Instagram video by Housing Minister Sean Fraser, where he talked about the building of victory homes after the Second World War and how to, uh, the, the, the country marshaled its resources to ensure that those who had served Canada could come home to affordable housing. And in this video, he suggested that we can do the same thing, but with new technologies. And uh, when I watched that, it occurred to me that Sean Fraser's having a bit of a moment. He's seems like he's everywhere. He is the face of the Liberal government's answer to this crisis. Uh, he's a 39 years old. He's a graduate of St. FX. He's the MP for Central Nova. If his bio read that he was a progressive conservative rather than a liberal, it would be identical to my dad's. <laughs> and, and actually, my dad was 44 when he became prime minister. So the question is, at 39, is Sean Fraser ready for primetime? Could he be the future of the Liberal Party? Jennifer, what do you think? Absolutely. But I think there's a lot of people I wouldn't rule out here. I think on housing, sure, he's having a moment. But, you know, I would also argue Olivia Chow is having a moment on housing. I think everybody working in this space is having a moment because it's very much the topic of the day. And he's been able to take the the new accelerator grant across the finish line. Um, and that was something that was started months ago. And uh, he's also going to be in a great position where all of the bills that happened under the rapid housing initiative will be opening so he'll be cutting a lot of ribbons so he will have a lot of exposure but i'm not going to rule out the enormous bench strength that the liberal party has in cabinet particularly with the women i think there are women like anita nand that are very effective leaders and um i think that while they might be quieter right now i think we can see a lot more of them to come if we were to go into a leadership race I mean, it, that, and that's that's all fair and entirely possible. Uh, but Eric, uh, it's it's really hard. I mean, Justin Trudeau has a spotlight on him wherever he goes, and the, 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 he reinvented the party in his own image. And um, I don't know whether he doesn't like to share the spotlight, or or it, uh, or the spotlight doesn't want anybody else in it. I don't know which way it goes. But not a lot of people have been able to um, take some of that spotlight away from him. Sean Fraser seems to have been able to do that to a certain extent. You know what? Sean Fraser's doing it to a certain extent, but nobody wins the Super Bowl in the, for, in the first quarter. And we are nowhere near an election. So I have a feeling that while he's having his moment today, 
as Jen said, I think a lot of people are going to have moments as we are still a long way out from an election. And there are a lot of good people who are not as tied to the hip of Justin Trudeau and his band of merry people, which right now, as you know and I know, is circling the drain. So I'm sure the Liberal Party is looking far and wide to find the next great person who can be separated from Trudeau and Freeland and say, we're going to take the party in a different direction with a new thought and a new philosophy. But I'd like to also quickly say, and I'm not sucking up or hopefully not wasting time, I think, and I'm biased, but I think your father was the greatest prime minister this country's ever seen. I told him so when I had the honor of spending an hour with him in his office in Montreal. And so I'd be very, very hesitant, Benedict, to make comparisons between anybody and your dad at this time. Oh, lots of people make comparisons, Eric. <laughs> uh, but hey, I, I do appreciate that. And I do agree with you. He was a pretty good prime minister. Um, I want to move on to a sports story. It's a health story as well. And Eric, we'll start with you. Nolan Patrick, the number two overall pick of the 2017 NHL draft, appears to have ended his playing career at 25. He's been plagued by a migraine disorder. He last appeared in a game with the, uh, the Golden Knights of Las Vegas in March of 2022. And he's, he's, he's decided he's, he's going to hang up his skates. And when you hear about athletes with chronic illnesses or, or medical conditions that they deal with long after they retire, um, to see somebody with the foresight and the wherewithal to retire before they hit that almost inevitable iceberg, it's refreshing. And I would say it's something that, 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 that should be emulated. Profe- professional athletes have a very short shelf life, and sometimes they stick around longer than they should chasing that next payday. Uh, hockey players are not exempt. And I got to say, if my kids ever had the skill to play at that highest level and achieve that goal, um, and then they found themselves face-to-face with an illness or an injury that can severely impair them long after their playing life, I would be advocating for what this young man did. I'd say it's time to hang it up because life is... Life is not just the sport, and you have a life after sports, and you want to be able to enjoy it. Uh, when you hear this story, what, what, what do you think? It actually breaks my heart. Now, I have two kids. One's 20 and one's 10, and my 10-year-old plays hockey. I frankly, as much as it breaks my heart, I would never let my son play football, and I love football. The reality is, is I find these stories heartbreaking, and I also find them heroic because we've seen far too many athletes who've had concussion syndromes, and other things that can really be terminal, uh, shorten their lives. And they say, you know what? I will trade the end of my life for this part of my life to play a few years of professional sports and be famous and make a lot of money. And you know what? You really can't blame some of these kids from where they come from when people start throwing millions and millions of dollars at them. But I truly do think at the core, a sports career on average in hockey, it's about five or six years. In football, it's three to four years. And I'd like to think that more people would have sort of the fluidity um, to say that I want to live a long and healthy and full life and that sports is only going to be a sliver of my life. Even if I was completely healthy, I'm not. So I'm going to walk away. But Ben, I got to tell you, as somebody who grew up loving hockey and football, I'm not really sure I could make that decision myself. I'd like to think I could, but I think it would be impossibly tough. Uh, Jennifer, if, uh, if your son uh, was playing a football or hockey or one of these contact sports and you found out that, um, that uh, the, the next hit could cause significant damage, what, what would you tell your son? 
well, I think we all want our kids to be healthy and happy. And, and what do you do when that conflicts? Really, that's, that's the big question here. And I think it's so easy for me to say retire um, and, you know, there's a life after, after hockey, after football. Um, but for some families, it's their whole identity. So the whole family grew up going to the games, uh, being the chauffeur, being the coach. Um, so it really is a, a definition of who all of them are. And so good for Nolan Patrick for making this decision. Um, it is the right one. And uh, I just hope he's one of the people that has one of those families that are going to be there to really, really support his transition and uh, help him through this hard time. Yeah, because it can't be easy leaving the sport that you love and then trying to re- um, sort of recreate a new identity in a lot of cases some people can get lost so you're right having that support system uh it would will prove vital uh it's 8:46, and you're listening to think tank with dr eric cam economics professor at tmu and a very good friend of the show and birthday girl jennifer mckelvey former deputy mayor and uh city councilor for scarborough rouge park for the past five years um hey uh, jennifer what do you think of pierre polyev's um uh, in, uh social media game because there's a poll that came out that said that people are feeling uh, those positive emotions from his social media game in 2023 that th- that they felt from Justin Trudeau's in 2015. And and I have to say, I, I've been fed a steady diet of people saying, um, you know, they might respect uh, Pierre Polyev as a par- parliamentarian, but people don't like the guy. He's not a likable guy, not the way Justin Trudeau's a likable guy. But but these numbers seem to be indicating that at least on the social media front, he is getting people to feel those things that Justin was able to get people to feel so many years ago that led him to um, 24 Sussex. Yeah, I, I absolutely think he's, he's moving his social media in the right direction. I think that when I traditionally looked at him, I saw that he was latching on to anger or despair that we had out there and and uh, acknowledging that, which I think many people weren't. Um, so it's nice to see that he's transitioning into hope and more into how do we get out of this housing crisis? How, where do we go from here as a society? So I think that people want to vote for hope. They want to uh, vote for a better future. And if you do look back at uh, Justin Trudeau's 2015 campaign, I remember the slogans even, hope and hard work. Better is possible. He was trying to be accused that he's not ready. He even had Hazel McCallion out there saying he's ready. So I think there's a lot that can be learned from the 2015 campaign for the Conservatives. And uh, I think their social media switching to more hopeful is definitely going to help get them there. But it's interesting that you say that, Jennifer, because um, it seems, and and Eric, let me know what you think about this, but just as you said that the Tories had a, a negative uh, tone in 2015, it seems like the liberals are now t- are, are formulating those attack ads. They're using them online, uh, but they, they have negative attack ads going after Pierre Polyev. So if they're going negative and he's uh, the, 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 the hope and, and sort of positive, uh, you know, t- t- tomorrow's going to be a better day candidate. Uh, does that spell um, does that spell doom for the um, for the liberals? Um, I think there's going to be doom for the Liberals, but I'm not sure this is the nail in the coffin. And I don't think we have enough time for me to tell you all of the reasons why I think we're headed for doom with the Liberals. Well, you don't have to tell us all the reasons, but why don't you give us one or two? I'll give you one or two. And the first one is, as an economist, there's really one thing I care about. If you take away all of the math and all of the ridiculousness, economics is about affordability. It's about feeding your family, clothing your family, and housing your family. And it has never been more difficult since the Great Depression to do that as it is 
right now. We still have 60% of mortgages in this country that are going to come due, and they haven't been affected by the high interest rates yet, and I'm afraid there's going to be blood on the streets when that happens. The bottom line is Canadian families have never been at the peril that they're at right now. And so who's coming out and talking about it? Mr. Polyev is coming out and talking about it. And don't get me wrong. I know that Mr. Trudeau goes on and on and on about his net zero campaign and his green initiative. And there is a time for those things. But it's not at a time when too many people are on the brink of losing their house or not being able to pay their rent. So what I really like about Mr. Polyev is it's the right message at the right time to try to catch a large chunk of the electorate that looks at Trudeau and Freeland and company and says, they're no longer helping me. Maybe this person and his team will help me. Uh, Jennifer, I would never ask you to uh, to give me an assessment of whether you think one party is going to win over another. But you are in a unique position on this think tank that, you know, you've got constituents. You talk to people on the ground day in and day out. You've been their representative for five years. Have you noticed in your uh, in your ward? Have you noticed in your community um, uh, an anger, a disappointment, a frustration, an anxiety uh, amongst uh, amongst the, the people you talk to that maybe wasn't there five years ago? Oh, for sure, for sure. But I don't think it's just directed at uh, the federal government. Yeah. I think there's also angst at the provincial government. There's angst at us at the municipal government. Everybody is worried. People are angry, and if we don't acknowledge that and have really hard conversations and figure out a path out of this together, um, then it's, it's going to spiral. It's going to continue, and uh, I think that's, um, that's just going to be really sad. It is. Uh, and you're right. There, there, there is a lot of anxiety to go around and a lot of blame to go around. I think every level of government uh, you know, has their priorities, which means that, uh, that, that certain things are going to be prioritized over others. Um, but uh, just because there is, in my opinion, just because there's uh, anxiety and blame to go around to everybody. Um, well, the fact is the next election that's going to happen is going to be the federal one. So they're going to be the ones who bear the brunt of that anxiety and that that. Um, uh, that discontent first, you know, Doug Ford's going to have is going to have his reckoning at the next election, but that's not for a while. And so if, if voters feel like they have that they need to assert themselves, they're going to do it at the first uh, uh, available opportunity, which will be the federal election. Uh, uh, Eric, do, do you think that because um, right now we know that the uh, the um, the question of the Israel Hamas war is making a certain youth vote um, that was airing on the side of Pierre Polyev go back to Justin Trudeau. Do you think that that is going to have long-term effects? Uh, that's an excellent question. That's going to depend on how long this mess drags on for. Um, complete disclosure, I'm Jewish, so I'm not exactly unbiased, but I think that um, a bellwether of how the support is going is when you look at the young people. I think that I don't want to speak for all of them because I'm far from young, but yeah, after the attacks in October happened, I think a lot of the young people were very pro-Israel. And then as, as things have gone on and evolved, war is nasty. We all know that. And as the numbers of deaths mount, people start to say, well, Israel was absolutely wronged and damaged by a bunch of terrorists. But maybe the response has been excessive. And, and I'm not here to say whether that is true or not. I'm not an expert in war or military or even the Middle East. But I think that it is, I'm just going to add this parenthetically, I think it's unfortunate 
that I think that a lot of the younger generation, um, activists or not, have taken their eyes off the prize and possibly shifted um, the blame game to the state of Israel, almost forgetting how and when this began. Jennifer, I'd like to spend the rest of our time on Think Tank talking about a topic of conversation that we have been dealing with all morning long, which is um, sort of the state of retail in the city of Toronto and the fact that crime is on the rise and protesters are descending on um, weary, unsuspecting last minute Christmas shoppers. Given the news that we've seen and some of it coming from Scarborough as well, are you more or less likely as a as a shopper, as somebody getting ready for the holidays? Are you more or less likely uh, to to venture out um, to one of these big retail areas or are you going to stay home and maybe try to order off of Amazon? I'm a shopper. I like doing it in person. I will be out there at some point either today or tomorrow to to do my shopping. But I do think that we have to be careful with what's happening right now with policing. They are tied up responding to protests and hate. Um, that is important. But we have response times that are slow across the city right now because of that. And I do think that criminals are starting to take advantage of that. They're taking advantage of the longer response times. They're being more brazen. You've seen that these robberies are happening during the day. Yeah. Uh, they know that retailers, you know, people walk in, fill their pockets, walk out. The retailers aren't, you know, don't chase them down. Like, so there were, there's not that accountability there. So um, we have to support our police in the upcoming budget. We have to invest more in police and uh, we have to make sure that uh, the spike that we are seeing here in theft um, starts to come down. Uh, Dr. Kama, I was pointing out earlier, there's, there's an article written in the Winnipeg Sun by a former um, MPP uh, named Kevin Klein who suggested that if the protesters really wanted to affect public policy, they would protest where our public policymakers are, specifically Queens Park, City Hall, a public square, perhaps even in front of um, uh, the the U.S. consulate to sort of put pressure on uh, Israel's chief um, uh, advocate in the area. Uh, that would be what they would want to do. But the fact that they are descending on malls and intimidating shoppers and um, screaming at Santa and asking to boycott Zara, which is a Spanish company. It says that 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 in a lot of cases, the priorities might have shifted away from public policy and into just general chaos. What are your thoughts? It's absolute chaos. I mean, it's hooliganism at best. And, you know, I'm honored, honored to be a professor at Toronto Metropolitan. But I'm not honored that a lot of days of the week I get to walk through Young and Dundas Square and see the absolute disgusting condition of that of that square, number one, and Young and Dundas, number two, which you could argue is the center of Toronto and the center of Canada. You know, they talk about strong mayor powers. We need strong police powers that we're giving way, way, way too much credit and sympathy to the people who are committing these offenses and not the people being attacked. This is not the time to send in social workers. When somebody is being attacked with somebody with a gun or a knife, I want the police to come in and help. It is time to stop being so sympathetic and going, well, what are the socioeconomic conditions that led this person to sticking a knife in my daughter's face? I don't care. I want the police to come in and arrest that person so that my daughter can go to the bathroom and be safe and stop telling me about the plight of the poor person holding the knife. Councillor Jennifer McKelvey, you've been part of those debates. You were you were there when uh, the the defund the police movement uh, took root. Um, and we are here a few years later. Um, talk to me a little bit about that journey. 
Well, I think we we acknowledge we do need to invest in wraparound services, but we need to invest in our police right now. And we did do that this year. We we put a boost into their budget. I think next year we need to do the same. I'll certainly be very vocal about that. We've seen response times that are just not okay across the city. Imagine if there is a domestic and a woman has a man knocking on her door trying to get in there and uh, she's terrified and it could take 20 minutes for the police to come. That is not acceptable. We need to invest in both. We need to invest in police, but we also need to invest in all the social services that need that, that try to um, lead to more crime prevention and put people in a better place so they don't need to resort to crime. Uh, my my last question is probably my most important. Jennifer McKelvey, what are you doing for your birthday? I'm hiding in my house because now everybody knows. <laughs> uh, so, uh, no, I have big plans, big plans. So I still haven't watched Barbie. So I'm going to watch Barbie tonight with my daughter. I haven't watched Barbie. I haven't watched Oppenheim. And if people were listening earlier today, even though I tried my best last night, I haven't watched Bad Money. Uh, Dr. Eric Cam, what are your hopes for the holidays? Um, you know, peace, love, health, and all of those rhetorical things that everybody says. Uh, Hanukkah's over, so I would just like to get through the ho- holiday season um, flu-free, RSV-free, and COVID-free because my house tends to be an incubation center. But before I go, I'd like to wish both of you the best of health to your families and to Jennifer a very happy, healthy birthday. Look at that. Oh, thank you so much. Happy holidays to both you. It's to great both, to chat with you. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you sir, for being such a great show, uh, friend to the show. Uh, Jennifer, it's been great getting to know you. It's been great having you on the show today. I hope we can do it again soon. 